First part of Chapter Two of the Second Volume of the Life of Reason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Krantz. The Life of Reason by George Santayana. Chapter Two: The Family, Part One. Side note: The family arises spontaneously. Love is but a prelude to life, an overture in which the theme of the impending work is exquisitely hinted at, but which remains nevertheless only a symbol and a promise. What is to follow, if all goes well, begins presently to appear. Passion settles down into possession, courtship into partnership, pleasure into habit. A child, half mystery and half plaything, comes to show us what we have done and to make its consequences perpetual. We see that by indulging our inclinations we have woven about us a net from which we cannot escape. Our choices bearing fruit begin to manifest our destiny. That life which once seemed to spread out infinitely before us is narrowed to one mortal career. We learn that in morals the infinite is a chimera, and that in accomplishing anything definite a man renounces everything else. He sails henceforth for one point of the compass. Side note. It harmonizes natural interests. The family is one of nature's masterpieces. It would be hard to conceive a system of instincts more nicely adjusted where the constituents should represent or support one another better. The husband has an interest in protecting the wife, she in serving the husband. The weaker gains in authority and safety, the wilder and more unconcerned finds a helpmate at home to take thought for his daily necessities. Parents lend children their experience and a vicarious memory. Children endow their parents with a vicarious immortality. Side note. Capacity to be educated goes with immaturity at birth. The long childhood in the human race has made it possible and needful to transmit acquired experience, possible because the child's brain, being immature, allows instincts and habits to be formed after birth, under the influence of that very environment in which they are to operate, and also needful since children are long and capable of providing for themselves and compel their parents, if the race is not to die out to continue their care and to diversify it. To be born half-made is an immense advantage. Structure performed is formed blindly. The a priori is as dangerous in life as in philosophy. Only the cruel workings of compulsion and extermination keep what is spontaneous in any creature harmonious with the world it is called upon to live in. Nothing but casual variations could permanently improve such a creature, and casual variations will seldom improve it. But if experience can cooperate in forming instincts, and if human nature can be partly a work of art, mastery can be carried quickly to much greater lengths. This is the secret of man's preeminence. His liquid brain is unfit for years to control action advantageously. He has an age of play which is his apprenticeship, and he is formed unawares by a series of selective experiments, of curious gropings, while he is still under tutelage and suffers little by his mistakes. 
Side note. The naturally dull achieve intelligence. Had all intelligence been developed in the womb, as it might have been, nothing essential could have been learned afterward. Mankind would have contained nothing but doctrinaires, and the arts would have stood still forever. Capacity to learn comes with dependence on education, and as that animal which at birth is most incapable and immature is the most teachable, so too those human races which are most precocious are most incorrigible, and while they seem the cleverest at first, prove ultimately the least intelligent. They depend less on circumstances, but do not respond to them so well. In some nations everybody is by nature so astute, versatile, and sympathetic, that education hardly makes any difference in manners or mind. And it is there precisely that generation follows generation without essential progress. And no one ever remakes himself on a better plan. It is perhaps the duller races, with a long childhood and a brooding mind, that bear the hopes of the world within them, if only nature avails to execute what she has planned on so great a scale. Side note. It is more blessed to save than to create. Generation answers no actual demand except that existing in the parents, and it establishes a new demand without guaranteeing its satisfaction. Birth is a benefit only problematically and by anticipation, on the presumption that the faculties newly embodied are to be exercised successfully. The second function of the family, to rear, is therefore higher than the first. To foster and perfect a life after it has been awakened, to cooperate with a will already launched into the world is a positive good work. It has a moral quality and is not mere vegetation. For in expressing the agent and giving him ideal employment, it helps the creature affected to employ itself better, too, and to find expression. In propagating and sowing broadcast precarious beings, there is fertility only, such as plants and animals may have, but there is charity in furthering what is already rooted in existence and is striving to live. This principle is strikingly illustrated in religion. When the Jews had become spiritual, they gave the name of Father to Jehovah, who had before been only the Lord of Armies or the architect of the cosmos. A mere source of being would not deserve to be called Father unless it shared its creature's nature and therefore their interests. A deity not so much responsible for men's existence or situation as solicitous for their welfare who pitied a weakness he could not have intended, and was pleased by a love he could not command, might appropriately be called a father. It then becomes possible to conceive moral intercourse and mutual loyalty between God and man, such as Hebrew religion so earnestly insisted on. For both then have the same interests in the world, and look toward the same consummations. So the natural relations subsisting between parents and children become moral when it is not merely derivation that unites them, but community of purpose. The father then represents his children while they are under his tutelage, and afterward they represent him, carrying on his arts and inheriting his mind. Side note. Parental instinct regards childhood only. These arts, in some cases, are little more than retarded instincts, 
faculties that ripen late and that manifest themselves without special instruction when the system is mature so a bird feeds her young until they are fledged and can provide for themselves parental functions in such cases are limited to nursing the extremely young this phase of the instinct being the most primitive and fundamental is most to be relied upon even in man especially in the mother care for the children's physical well-being is unfailing to the end she understands the vegetative soul and the first lispings of sense and sentiment in the child have an absorbing interest for her in that region her skill and delights are miracles of nature but her insight and keenness gradually fade as the children grow older seldom is the private and ideal life of a young son or daughter a matter in which the mother shows particular tact or for which she has instinctive respect even rarer is any genuine community in life and feeling between parents and their adult children often the parents influence comes to be felt as a dead constraint the more cruel that it cannot be thrown off without unkindness and what makes the parents claim at once unjust and pathetic is that it is founded on passionate love for a remembered being the child once wholly theirs that no longer exists in the man to train character and mind would seem to be a father's natural office but as a matter of fact he commonly delegates that task to society the fledgling venturing for the first time into the air may learn of his father and imitate his style of flight but once launched into the open it will find the whole sky full of possible masters the one ultimately chosen will not necessarily be the nearest in reason it should be the most congenial from whom most can be learned to choose an imitable hero is the boy's first act of freedom his heart grows by finding its elective affinities and it grows most away from home it will grow also by returning there when home has become a part of the world or a refuge from it but even then the profoundest messages will come from religion and from solitary dreams a consequence is that parental influence to be permanent requires that the family should be hedged about with high barriers and that the father be endowed with political and religious authority he can then exercise the immense influence due to all tradition which he represents and all law which he administers but it is not his bare instincts as a father that give him this ascendancy it is a social system that is delegated to him most of its functions so that all authority flows through him and he retails justice and knowledge besides holding all wealth in his hand when the father apart from these official prerogatives is eager and able to mould his children's minds a new relation half natural and half ideal which is friendship springs up between father and son in this ties of blood merely furnish the opportunity and what chiefly counts is a moral impulse on the one side to beget children in the spirit and on the other a youthful hunger for experience and ideas side note handing on the torch of life if nunc dimittis is a psalm for love to sing it is even more appropriate for parental piety on seeing heirs and representatives of ours already in the world we are inclined to give them place and trust them to realize our foiled ambitions they we fancy will be more fortunate than we 
we shall have screened them from whatever has most maimed our own lives their purer souls as we imagine will reach better things than are now possible to ours distracted and abused so long we commit the blotted manuscript of our lives more willingly to the flames when we find the immortal text already half engrossed in a fairer copy in all this there is undoubtedly a measure of illusion since little clear improvement is ordinarily possible in the world and while our children may improve upon us in some respects the devil will catch them unprepared in another quarter yet the hope in question is a transcript of primary and personal functions to which nature at certain levels limits the animal will to keep life going was in the beginning the sole triumph of life even when nothing but reproduction was aimed at or attained existence was made possible and ideally stable by securing so much and when the ideal was enlarged so as to include training and rearing the new generation life was even better entrenched and protected though further material progress may not be made easier by this development since more dangers become fatal as beings grow complex and mutually dependent a great step in moral progress has at any rate been taken in itself a desire to see a child grow and prosper is just as irrational as any other absolute desire but since the child also desires his own happiness the child's will sanctions and supports the father's thus two irrationalities when they conspire make one rational life the father's instinct and sense of duty are now vindicated experimentally in the child's progress while the son besides the joy of living has the pious function of satisfying his parents hopes even if life could achieve nothing more than this it would have reached something profoundly natural and perfectly ideal in patriarchal ages men feel it is enough to have inherited their human patrimony to have enjoyed it and to hand it down unimpaired he who is not childless goes down to his grave in peace reason may afterward come to larger vistas and more spiritual aims but the principle of love and responsibility will not be altered it will demand that wills be made harmonious and satisfactions compatible end of chapter two part one recording by pamela Krantz.